Very excited to be back here with uh, Rebecca Braun. How you doing, Rebecca? Good, thanks. I'm I'm very happy to have you here. Now, I recently learned you're back in town in Juno, and for the folks who don't know, you ran the budget report for a long time, right? Yeah, I did. So I got to tell you, I started the Alaska Political Report recently, which is s- somewhat similar to the budget report. But whenever I bring it up to people, um, they always go back to the budget report. It's like the you know best kind of thing that used to be around for for politics and, and the budget in the Capitol. So you ran that for a long time, right? Yeah, I did. Um, and I have to say Greg Erickson and Judy Erickson, they, they founded it and they, they really set it up, ran it for a long time and then essentially gave me this great turnkey operation, um, and continued to work with me. So, um, they started, sure they get a lot of credit. <laughs> they started like in the nineties, right? Yeah, I think it was about 1990, either 90 or 91, but Judy Erickson actually went even way back further. And, um, you know, I've been, I'm still in touch with them, but was just thinking about Judy because she worked in the, uh, you know, way back when Mike Bradner, who just died, uh-huh. um, was speaker of the house. Judy worked for Mike Bradner. So she had a lot of experience. And then she started with um, her friend, Mary Lou Elton, who was married to Kim Elton, who was Juno's senator for a while. They started this business called Capital Information Group, and they were publishing different reports focused on kind of like education report, this, that, the other thing. Um, And then actually Mary Lou Elton spun off separately with her education report that she eventually Shauna Crondall took over. Who's still still doing it. Yes, that's a little history for you. Judy, meantime, um, I'll just... You know, cut to the chase. She and Greg ended up starting the Alaska Budget Report, which, um, you know, she was officially the publisher and Greg was the editor in like 1990. And it kind of slowly grew and grew. Um, and then I joined them in 2000, the Budget Report. And, and, ba- ended up- and back then these were like on paper? They were- yeah, it was when I joined in 2000, we were still making paper copies and um, we were publishing Wednesday mornings and walking around town, hand delivering them, uh, which was kind of like a nice, relaxing, fun way to do it and check in with clients sometimes or subscribers. But we also sent it by email at, at that point. And then it, once I took it over, I kind of went to um, email only. Yeah, so the way I'm doing it now with the, the political report, we're doing email, but the thing you worry about is you people pay for it, and we make it very clear: don't forward this. But you know, you never you never can control if somebody prints it or it's really PDFs it or gives hard. It. Yes, it's really hard, and you just have to have kind of relationships with your subscribers mm-hmm. where you have to make sure they understand. Like, I can't do this if I don't get paid for it. So if you value it, please, you know. Uh, make sure I can get paid for it by not sharing it. And you just have to kind of go on the honor system, which is another thing I've been thinking about. But yeah. <laughs> well, I have a little bit of me- my metrics and analytics, you know, to track it. But still, you can't. There's always ways yeah. to get Trust around. but verify. Right. The, the Reagan. And the, <laughs> yes. so- the Soviets said that. The Russians. Yeah. Um, so when you, you started in 2000, but you're not from Alaska, right? You, you I think you came no. here in the night. Not, you came. You said for the forest I service, right? I came here. Yeah, I grew up in Boston, and then um, when I graduated college, I came up for a summer job with a research branch of the Forest Service. I was like a, a botanist and research ecologist, basically, um, running did, running around in the forest and float planes and tents on Admiralty Island, and it was fun. Did you want to come to Alaska? Or you just saw the Alaska job. 
Uh, so it's kind of a longer, more boring story. <laughs> I, yeah, I ended up just getting this job because I, yeah, I wanted to get, I wanted to go west of the Mississippi. So you went I real west. put out a bunch of feelers and I ended up, um, getting and get somebody, an ecologist who worked on the Tongass got in touch with me and said, Hey, do you want this job in the Tongass? I saw your resume on a bulletin board. Cause I managed to get somebody to put my resume on a bulletin board in Montana. So that's actually how I ended up here. My parents, you can probably imagine, were like, what the hell? <laughs> You're going to Alaska mm-hmm. because some stranger emailed you? And I was like, hey, I'm a good researcher. And I, at the time, you know, it was like library, microfiche, you know, all this stuff. And I found his publications and he was a legit PhD ecologist named Paul Alabak. And uh, he got me, uh, he gave me travel money and I came up here for the summer job and just loved it. Like, so you stayed? Loved or it. You yeah, just stayed I just stayed. Uh-huh. Well, you came to Juno at first, or yeah, Juno. So what? What'd you do after? I mean, after that, did you stay in the forest? Yeah, they ended up kind of keeping me on, um, and I stayed there for about a year and a half. And then I wanted to work more with people, um, but I really didn't want to leave Alaska. So I started working in the school district as an aide um, in like a program for at-risk youth. And then I got sort of pulled into getting my master's in teaching at UAS did a one-year master's in teaching and you know it wasn't ever what I really thought I was gonna do for my career but I did teach for a few years and then got into journalism I was gonna say how'd you get into the budget that's like a much different path than yeah totally forestry and teaching than journalism I think you know I was just like a little bit slow to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I got married in 1999, the fall, and we took like six weeks traveling. And so my plate was kind of clear work-wise. In, in U.S. or abroad, the traveling? Abroad, oh, yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, mostly Thailand, but also side trip to China. I love Thailand. Yeah, I'm, so I'm... my sister-in-law lived in Thailand uh, for years, she married a Thai man. And so we have all this like Thai family. So it was really great. Like stayed on our family, sort of Thai family's rice farm. And my buddy yeah, has, cool. he, he bought years ago, a couple like condo, high rise condos that are pretty, pretty cheap. And he still has them. So I went there years ago and three or four years ago and stayed there for a couple of weeks. And the, the people there are just so nice and just peaceful. Mm-hmm. It's just very, it's just a great place. Every, Everything's the food's so good, and it's like cheap, and the beach, and I know. there's always something to do. No matter what you want to do, there's always something going on. I know. I really love it. I want to go back there. I love the food too. So you came back because you you said you started in 2000. Okay, the- yeah. So we came back. It was like December 1999, and I actually was looking. This is like really old school. I was looking in the classified ads, the print paper in the Juno Empire, and that I saw this school. thing. Yeah, like looking for a reporter <clears throat> to cover the legislature for the Alaska budget report, and I mean, I was like. That sounds really interesting because I always liked writing and I was always drawn to politics and policy and it was just something I had on the side done, you know, published a few things here and there. Um, And so I had some clips that I scrounged up and gave Greg and my resume and he's like, okay, Greg Erickson hired me and... Were you familiar? I mean, you live in Juneau. Were you familiar with... I lived in Juneau. Were you familiar with legislature? I was kind of familiar with it. I mean, in fact... I had testified a few times on various things because I'm an opinionated person. <laughs> I, I, I gathered that, so, which is good. I mean, which is which is funny because as a journalist, I really did um, kind of, I wouldn't say I totally set those opinions aside, but I kept that 
I kept them pretty separate from my journalism work. I really tried, and I really think that's important, which is another whole thing if you want me to riff on that. but So it's funny because like, I started this political report recently with some people, but I, I started the landmine three you know almost four years ago, and the political report's a whole separate business. And the landmine is like, you know, there's there's obviously we I do stories and I break things and I look at things objectively, but I also, you know, on my Sunday columns or other things, I'll interject my opinion or I'll editorialize. But with this political report, it's a whole different thing. It's like very yeah. factually, like here's the information, here's the here's what it is, and it's more research and it's sometimes it's hard because you want to say something. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you really have to. I I believe, you know, that it's important to try to let the facts speak for themselves. And I think that if you do a really good job, mm-hmm. you really do your research, and you really talk to people, um, you can uh, um, show people sort of what the truth is without just giving them your opinion, you know. And Greg used to say um, objectivity is not neutrality, Greg Erickson. And I used to mm-hmm. try to, like, what does that mean? I struggled with that. But I get it, but it's hard to explain. But I think um, it basically means like the facts are not necessarily neutral, you know, like often there is somebody who is more in the right and somebody who's more in the wrong. But if you do a good job as a journalist, you don't have to hammer people with your opinion. So You, You provide the information and they can make that judgment because you've provided enough information that's accurate um, with the right context. So an example of that is, and I totally agree. I mean, sometimes a story is not 50-50. Sometimes it's like 90-10. Yeah. And an example I give was um, a couple of years ago, Anchorage passed a plastic bag ban and, you know, people were pissed and, you know, it kind of up, up in arms about it. And this, this guy who was kind of a political gadfly, runs for office all the time, he did like a plastic bag ban recall. And I mean, it was clear he wasn't even going to ever get the signatures. It was like on his own. But the story came out and I think it was... It was channel KTU or one maybe it was one of these or ADN and it, it came out and and if you read the story and you didn't know what was happening you didn't know the people you'd think it was like an organized effort to get end the plastic bag ban and if you know this guy and if you follow this stuff you knew there was no way it was ever going to be a thing right but the way the story read it, it was kind of like even and somebody says well it's important to be kind of even and I said well I don't not always because it's always not even right or maybe you do something in that case like. Try to really, I like to look at history, you know? I mean, it's like, I really like to look at history. So if I'm looking at a bill or legislation or a person, you know, what's their history? And then you could share that. You know what I mean? You could say, Mm -hmm. this individual has, you know, whatever, run for office six times and never garnered more than 2%. Or, you know what I mean? And then you don't have to say, like, this isn't a very serious effort. You let the facts show it. So somebody told me exactly that. They gave me some long time ago advice. You say, you get the facts, you lead people to... To, to the conclusion, but you don't need to say the conclusion. Oh, you just get, exactly. write everything down, lead them to where, you know, where, where they should go based on all the information and then let them make their own conclusion. But if you do it right, then they should make the, yeah. you know, the right or, conclusion. And, you know, I think I can't stand when I read an article and it literally really says, he said, blah, blah, blah. She said, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, can't you dig a little more and give me some clue mm-hmm. about what's real? Otherwise, don't do this to me. It just breeds cynicism and mistrust. Those so the- there was there was one time I remember when, um, this was a long time ago, but Senate Finance, there was a Senate Finance co-chair who was berating um, a health and social services, admin services director about Medicaid Overages, You know, Medicaid is always going over and that's a whole other story, you know, because there wasn't a lot of truth in budgeting with Medicaid. But so it was like Medicaid came back for some big supplemental and the Senate finance co-chair 
berated this uh, administration official saying, you never told me this. Why didn't you warn me? And the administration official kind of quietly, because you don't want to contradict somebody, said, oh, we actually did, but I apologize, you know, whatever. So I, I heard that, like we did. And, and, and then there was sort of some he said, she said, got published in another um, news account. But I went to her, the administration official, and I said, can you document, do you have documented when and how you informed the Senate Finance Co-Chair? And she said, yes, <laughs> thank you for asking, and supplied me with the letter, you know, um, that had been delivered and it was dated and signed and it had the whole, and, and it was like a week before that. And so then I wrote it, the story, and I quoted from the letter. So I did not, I, I did not say, Senate finance co-chair lied, you know, cause like, I, that's not my place. Maybe, maybe she forgot. Maybe she didn't know. I'm not going to judge, but now people can also see mm-hmm, who see is that. actually giving the accurate story. Either she didn't read it, um, or she did read it and forgot, you know. Yeah. But the point is, she got yeah. it, and she should have had. had yeah. It. So it's like, you know, there are often ways of not leaving the reader in the dark. Like, you know, yeah, giving it's, the it's giving pretty, the reader some important clues. It's pretty incredible. So I, I've been this is my third year down here, um, and now we have this new business which is requires paying you know more attention to some of these obscure committees. But it's really interesting. Even some of these budget subcommittees, or like the, I went to the legislative budget and audit committee last week, the first meeting. And I was just kind of curious what they were going to do. And, and Those are always interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're obscure. and Most people have no idea what any of the committees are, but really nobody knows what, unless you're really paying attention, um, legislative budget and audit committee. But the f- uh, former chair, Representative Tux, my rep, and then the current um, chair, Senator Von Imhoff, is my senator because it changes back and forth. Um, it's a joint committee. So I just wanted to kind of see how it was going to. And there's some interesting people on that committee as well. And I was like, I wonder if it's going to go off the rails maybe. And it didn't, but the legislative auditor, uh, what's her name? Chris Curtis. Chris Curtis was there, and she was just kind of introducing and going over some stuff for the new members. And in that uh, obscure committee where there was like three people watched, you know, in person, and I doubt anybody was really watching, she said something fascinating, um, that Alaska was one of um, a few states chosen for a federal audit of the CARES Act funds. And I was like, what? I mean... Yeah. So me and a few other people on the committee, they're like, what? And they started asking who else was picked and what's going on. And um, and I wrote a story about a while back about ADA, uh, a bunch of ADA board members and employees got like almost half a million dollars in CARES Act grants for their businesses or families' businesses. And they applied like days before the program was over. It seemed very kind of interesting timing. Um, and then they all followed up and she didn't know much, but I followed up and then I finally, this last week, got an email, and only four, it was us, the Virgin Islands, uh, South Dakota, and some some uh, tribal group that got chosen. And in the letter from the feds, it says, due to the you know n- number of complaints about how the money, who knows who, knows who complained about what, but yeah. that was like, I mean, if I wasn't there, I doubt that would have come out, maybe, exactly. as quickly as it did. Because exactly. right away, I tweeted it, and I said, oh my, you're like, we're yeah. under audit by the feds. Yeah, you know, people would sometimes ask me like how I found all this stuff out or how, you know, how we found out and <laughs> just listen is we just listened and watched and asked for documents and read things like none of it was, you know, 1% of what I figured out. Maybe somebody like whispered in my ear, it really, it was like 99% right there, but the public is understandably, you know, it's overwhelming. That's why you need people, you know, we, we live in this like age of information glut. So, you know, it's hard. I understand why people don't, 
pay attention to all of it. But if you have the time to dig in, like it's all right. There's so much interesting stuff happening that people are not really aware of. I think to properly, you know, say if you had unlimited funds and money and resources, I think to properly cover that place to really cover everything that's happening, you would probably need like five or six people. Yeah, we, we had, you know, we were pretty lucky the budget report because Judy Erickson, who I mentioned, who was still publishing her separate reports, but since she was part of our group, she would give us lots of interesting information or we could take some of her stuff Mm -hmm. and adapt it so we could share back and forth. So really she was part of our team. There was Greg Erickson, there was me. Um, so we had three and sometimes we would like hire people to help here and there, but we had like three, which made us frankly the biggest, um, you know, journalism group covering the legislature and that helped. And I think it also helped that we just published weekly and we really focused, you know, it was like, we're going to do stories and report them in depth. We're not going to beat, beat people on the like daily news cycle, but we're going to beat them in terms of depth and we're going to find stories other people aren't covering. Because any given day, I mean, if you pay attention, if you kind of know there's five or 10 or more committee hearings and you kind of know which ones are the probably more interesting ones or more, more topical, but then some of the other ones, interesting tidbits come out. Yeah. You have, you know, you have to either go back and watch them and sometimes they're like hours long and it's, it's, it's frustrating. But, but I, I found that since I started this political report, people are paying for it. You know, they're paying quite quite a bit of money for for the subscription. So I find that, um, I don't want to say I, it's, it's a lot more focused and I, I go a lot further on some of this stuff because they're paying for it. So they really want to read it opposed yeah. to a story that you're going to do that maybe a lot of people read, but they aren't going to go, th- they aren't going to look at the details of it. They just want to kind of know the, the big picture. Yeah, for sure. And we, we had a pretty high subscription price and I was painfully aware of that every week and would kind of stress myself out thinking like, am I giving people their money's worth? Yeah. Am I giving something they can't find anywhere else? Is it completely accurate? You know, is it, do I have any typos? Did I put pubic instead of public? You know, every week before, that, that, that every happened. week I would do a search for the word pubic. <laughs> that, that was that, my that, biggest fear. That happened fear. last week in, uh, from a senator from the, from the newsletter. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> in so, in, a in senator's newsletter? Yes. In the title. Oh yeah. No, they they should take a cue from me, man. Before you send, just always do a search for the word pubic. That's a good. Yeah, it's a good. Yeah. I've, I've I think I've done it before yeah. too. And it's, when Wilson Condon was revenue commissioner, I did a search every week for the word condom. Oh my God! Did yeah. You ever did you ever do condom? No, no, because I so you were because I was so paranoid about it. You, you, you were thinking ahead. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that would have been hilarious. <laughs> no, commissioner condom. <laughs> Never did it, but little does he know, I did a search every week for condom. That's so funny. Yeah. Is he still around? That was when was that in the two thousand? You know what? I don't know, and now of course I'm concerned that maybe I'm being disrespectful or something. I think it's very I funny. Don't know. It's fine. Yeah, you're, thanks. You're <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, so you started in two thousand. Yeah. And then at some point you bought it, right? Yeah, that happened uh, like fall of two thousand five. So. So two thousand was kind 2006, of I a little bit similar to now. With I mean, lo- low revenue, low oil prices. Uh, there was a lot of. You know, what are we going to do? How are we going to get money? Yeah, it was the same damn conversation. It was like... Didn't they have the, Andrew Halker yeah. gave me a binder a couple of years ago, five, four or five years ago. It was called the Fiscal Policy Caucus. Oh, I remember. I covered the Fiscal Policy Caucus very closely, yeah. So he gave me a binder of, of their kind of report, and I read through it. This is like four years ago or five years ago. And it was like so shocking. It was everything was a fucking exact same, same conversation, yeah. same recommendation, same problem, identical. Yep. Like if you took the dates out, you just put it, put it out now, and people would think it was just written. Yep. It was Lisa Murkowski, Ethan Berkowitz. It was this bipartisan group Mm -hmm. of kind of um, 
uh, moderate Republicans and a bunch of Democrats. And they came up with, you know, it, it's not hard to identify the problem. And it's not really hard to identify the solutions. It's just hard, hard for, I. it's hard for politicians to tell the public that they're going to need to swallow a bitter pill. Yeah. Um, and it's hard for the public to accept it because... Politicians, I think, mostly don't, you know, own up and explain it clearly enough. They leave it to a few, and those few then get voted out of office. Well, you look at the last two Senate presidents, both, you know, got defeated. and Yeah. You yeah. know, the people who tell it like it is, whether they're Republican or Democrat or independent, like Governor Walker, tend to get voted out. We don't like to hear things that are like, you know... Not fun. I think history, we'll talk about, Yeah. but we'll talk about, you, you're working for Walker, weren't you, for a while? We'll talk about yeah, that. But I think history is going to look, whatever happens, you know, he's going to look very favorable. It's going to look very favorable on Walker because he was, you know, looking back, even now, he, he the, the, the uh, POMV thing draw, but, but just kind of being so aware of the problems and, yeah. you know, he tried a lot of solutions and very few got adopted. But looking back, I mean, I think people are like, mm, maybe we should have done some of that. Yeah, I won't argue with you there. So you bought it. Would they come to you and say, hey, we want to sell? Or did you no, go to them? No, I mean, or? this was kind of a long process. Because when I started, Greg and Judy were, you know, Greg was, he had been doing it a long time. He was older. It's a lot of work. You know, we were pulling all-nighters. And so from about my second year there, he started saying, you should take this over someday. So it was kind of more like, um, almost more like a family business transitioning to the next generation. You know, if yeah. I, um, I really, as you can tell, feel very warmly towards them and you know we it was a very well we, um, we, did, we did that i was very, very appreciate we did that zoom yeah. a few weeks ago with it with uh, greg and, and he's funny too he was he was really enjoyable talking to him yeah i mean greg he was a really great mentor for me you know i mean he and i are different in a lot of ways and we were able to we we argued often but a sort of like constructive productive arguing you know um i mean and also arguing that sometimes it brought us levity like i remember one time like 2 a.m on publication night and I was editing something he'd written, and he wrote kerfluffle. And I'm like, <laughs> Greg, it's not kerfluffle, it's kerfuffle. And he's like, no, it's kerfluffle. And we get in this argument at 2 in the morning. You know, Next thing you know, I'm like almost crying, laughing. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> so, of course, I was right. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> Go to the Google. Um, yes. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, so the, they transitioned the report to me, I would say. And they were um, really generous in their... Uh, continued to stay involved, which was really helpful to me because um, I continued to lean heavily on on them. That seems to be. I've had some friends who have bought bought long term old businesses, and it seems to be the best way for success is the old owners or people stay on for a year or two. Yeah, just even as maybe consultants or just to help out or be be there. Because uh, a lot of these businesses, you know, people run these for their whole for their lives, and then they don't have any continuity or any kind of long term transition plan and something happens and then the business just kind of you know suffers. yeah and you're making me feel kind of a little badly because after you know when I was ready to transition out of it um which was more just for personal reasons um I almost sold it to somebody and our our deal kind of I backed out of it because they did want me to stay on I think three years and I was like I think I can't really commit to that um and so I ended up selling it to somebody um, and not staying on, and it folded. You know, it didn't really make it. He's up to the, what's the guy's it. name? Fra Frank? Frank Amaduri. He started the Grinder News at some point. Remember that? 
It was yeah. so bizarre because Grindr is like the gay, you know, like dating <laughs> app. And I remember when it came out, everybody was like, why, why are you calling it Grindr? Like, that's a weird name for political news. I don't even know if that lasted very long. Yeah, I don't know either. It was three or four years ago. But you, when you, you, you sold it because you had, some, you had a health thing come up, right? You, uh, I sold it before I had a health thing come up. I, so I had, um, my husband died, John Coet, and, you know, various people, a lot of people around Juno know him, but uh, he died in an accident. It was like a really tragic, you guys were on vacation, right? Just a really yeah. tragic. Yeah. And so he died October 2010, and the, our kids were eight and two. And the budget report, as you, I think, can see, it's, it was very all-consuming, you know, and during right. the session I was working, I don't know how many hours, it was, it really took a lot of focus. So I, I call you every Thursday, not everyone, <laughs> but I call you and it's like, I'm so fucking nervous to press yeah. send, you know, because you want to make sure it's right, but then you spend all this week working and... and yeah, it's work. like this constant kind of, it's a sort of heavy burden on you. So it's not just the hours you're working, but it's like always in your head of like what you need to do or what you might have done better or like, oh my God, did I did I put a typo or make a mistake or is somebody going to sue me for libel? Like there's, there's an emotional burden of it. And so I loved it. It was some of the most interesting work I've ever done and hopefully impactful too. But I just had to get kind of out from under it and focus on my kids and I couldn't even imagine I don't have any kids I couldn't even imagine yeah uh with kids or oh my gosh it's so much it's so like you said time consuming yeah kids are definitely time consuming no no the, the, the reports <laughs> oh, the time consuming, board, yeah. having yeah. kids I mean I couldn't even you know, imagine yeah it's right. funny you mentioned making a mistake two weeks ago we did like a special uh edition of kind of the APOC uh wrap-up of the year-end reports and who moved money to future counts and you know, yeah I saw that and what and um you know, I read it, I wrote it, and several of us were, you know, doing it, and we went through it and kept looking and sent it, and then within, like, a couple hours, I get a, a, an email from somebody saying, um, you know, Josh Reback isn't a Democrat. And I go, oh, fuck. He's like, my, he's like a friend of mine, I know, you too. know that. So I go, like, I, we just missed it. It just happened, Anchorage Democrat, you know, just totally accidental. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I texted him, and I was like, hey, this thing, you know, he's a subscriber. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Well, and you know what? Mistakes happen, and we were pretty, we were really uh, dedicated to publishing corrections, you know, even yeah. if it's online and you can correct it. I mean, that, that makes it a little fuzzier, but it's good to say, like, in an earlier edition, yeah. we made this error, and I just think that's really important for building trust, but yeah, mistakes happen. So you got, you sold it. Yeah. And then you got, afterwards, you got, you got sick, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Was it a year or about a year later, yeah, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, wow. But you got treatment right away? or Yeah, I got treatment right away. I had to leave, though. I had to kind of pack up and move to Seattle for a year on not much notice. So. And your kids were, they were... At that, that point, five and 11. Yeah. And then at some point you were, that's when I remember I connected with you a couple of years, you were in Boston, right? Yeah, it's, I was in Boston, and that's a really long story, but the short version is my daughter was there. She basically went there when I was getting my cancer treatment to live with my parents and stayed. So we went there for her last three years of high school so that she could kind of have the continuity of being there. And it was kind of nice for my son, who's now 13, to be able to be around my parents and, of course, be around his sister. You know, it was just important that we were all together for three years. And now she's graduated high school. So she's in college now or eh, she would be she's taking a year off oh, the and then COVID. she's going to uh uvm university of vermont next in the fall yeah oh uh capital montpelier 
Uh, it's right. in Burlington. I just remember the capital because it's like a weird. Yeah, yeah, Montpellier. Weird, anyway, weird, weird name. Um, it's in Burlington, Vermont. That's where uh, the Bernie Sanders, right? Yeah, it's totally home of Bernie <laughs> Sanders. It's he was mayor of Burlington, I think, in like the eighties or yeah, nine, long time ago. Yeah, it's the original home of Bernie's mittens. Mm-hmm. So they have that. Is that Mount Washington? Is that in Vermont? No, it's in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. That's yeah. that super windy where people, it's not even that high, but people die all the time. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't over-dramatize Mount Washington. I've hiked it three times, including last summer. It's But it can get very like windy, like 100, 100 plus mile. Yeah, it does have pretty high, yep, sometimes. I heard a story about, there was like 1700, somebody went up there and they never found him and it was, it was kind of sad. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Long time ago. Yeah, it, is re- it does have super harsh weather in the winter, I have to say, and I have so, not climbed it in the winter. So how did you get... Uh, Hooked up in the job with Bill Walker. Uh, you know, I just, oh, I was coming back. So I didn't, I was coming back. After I sold a budget report, I said I was just going to take like a year off, you know. And then that year off turned into a little bit longer because of the breast cancer thing. So I came back from Seattle. So you sold it in 13? Yeah. Uh, no. Sold it in, yes, January of 13. You're right. And then fall of 2014, Bill Walker got elected and I didn't know him and I wasn't involved in his campaign. I've never been involved in campaigns. I just saw not my thing. And, um, and I avoided all really that kind of politics while I was doing the budget report. Smart. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Good call. Yeah. (laughs) I highly recommend you do the same. Um, but that's just probably good advice. Yeah. So. Actually, I went to his inauguration. It's kind of funny. His inauguration was, I think, I want to say December 1st, 2014. And it was in Juneau at Centennial Hall, which is like a half mile from my house. And my son was in first grade. And that that morning, we had um, just traveled back from, we just got back from a Thanksgiving trip and he didn't want to go to school. And I was like, you got to go to school. But I didn't really have the energy to fight him. Because we had flown in. Yeah. You know when you fly in from Seattle in the morning? And he was just like, I'm not going oh, yeah, to school. And, I was, and then On a Monday? It was like a Monday, I think. Ugh, I don't, yeah. I wanna, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I don't blame him. So, and it was snowy out. And so I, I had noticed that at noon, that was the inauguration at Centennial Hall. And I thought, I'm going to go. You know, this is a cool opportunity to like see history. And I, and I was excited about Bill Walker from his campaign, you know, and I did vote for him. I didn't work on the election, as I said, or give any money or anything. But so I decided to go. And so I finally said to my son, all right, if you don't want to go to school, you have to come with me to the inauguration. And he's like, inaugure what? You know, he's six, seven. And I said, the inauguration, Bill Walker. And he's like, okay. And I said, but you got to wear boots because there was like a foot of new snow and he hates boots. And so I knew he didn't want to go to school because he goes, okay. So we walked to the inauguration and of course, like, easy, easy trudging sell. through the snow, we were a little bit late and we got in and it was just about to start. And so I was like, oh shoot, where are seats? And it was like, it looked like standing room only. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to stand here holding my six-year-old, you know. And then I quick saw two seats on the end of an aisle and we just, or one seat actually, I ducked in and put him on my lap. And then I looked around and I saw Beth Curtula and like Rick Halford and all these people. And I was like, oh, fun. Hi, hi, hi. And then I looked and I was in this like VIP section by accident. Oh my God. <laughs> so I know. I was like, oh God, that's embarrassing. But it was fun to see everybody. And they, it was probably really... all knew, they probably all knew though because of the budget report. Yeah, 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 yeah. I knew most of the people there. And, and afterwards, Rick Halford and I were talking and Rick said, oh, your name came up as somebody because he was running the transition. Um, yeah, that's right. He was. Yeah. I so that. basically that, um, he said, would you be interested in working for the governor in a policy capacity? And I said, 
yeah, I'd like to learn more. So that's how that happened. And you had never worked in government before, right? Or like state government? No, not really. I had worked a little bit at the Department of Education writing curriculum for the um, Alaska Central School, which no longer exists, but that's pretty different. Alaska Central School. That was um, originally centralized correspondence school, and it predated statehood. It was a correspondence school by mail. It was pretty cool. Oh, really? Yeah, Murkowski kind of had, I think, some kind of vendetta against it and shut it down. But it was in existence for like 60 years. So it was like a high school or a it was, higher? I want to. I think it was K through twelve. Wow. Yeah. Ever. So back, I mentioned earlier that I had a teaching degree. So I spent a little time working at Alaska Central School. Other than that, no, I hadn't worked for the state. So just totally random. You go to this inauguration with the kid with the boots, no school. You see Halford. He's yeah. in the VIP section. He goes, "Your name came up." Yeah, your name came up in conversations. And you and you were like, "Great." I mean. So what happened? Would you, you, would you be interested in working for the governor? You know, and I was like, sure. He said, okay, I'll have somebody call you. And somebody called me and we had some conversations. And so you had like a meeting or the, like yeah. how long afterwards did you get like the job offer? The next day. What? Yeah. Wow. Just after, after the Thanksgiving. Maybe vacation. I shouldn't share this. You know, oh, this is I, great. This is good stuff. <laughs> it, they wanted to create like a policy shop in the governor's office, I guess, where people would do, um, instead of just being special assistants who were kind of like go-betweens, mm-hmm. their their vision was to create sort of have three to five people who would just do policy. So Governor Walker, you know, as an independent, he wasn't kind of getting fed stuff from left-wing think tanks or right-wing think tanks. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and he wanted independent research into policy ideas and solutions. And I really liked the thought of that. And I thought, okay, this is actually a lot like what I do anyway. I like to do research and writing. You had like 13 and, years of that. Yeah. And it ended up, you know, we didn't end up getting sort of the whole policy shop. Um, that, that vision shifted a little bit. Um, but it was a great job, and I really enjoyed working for Governor Walker a lot because he was um, sincere. I know not everybody listening is going to have been a Governor Walker fan, but I can say that he was sincere about listening to new ideas. And I remember him saying to me the first time I met him, um, some Alaskans like to say, I don't care how they do it outside. He said, I do. I If somebody has a good idea, I don't care if it's from the left or the right or from another state or country. Uh, I just want to hear any good ideas out there. So how long were you, how long, you were there for? I was there for three years and then um, I went, had resigned because I moved back east for the three-year stint back east. You keep getting drawn to Boston. Well. It's home, I guess, right? Kind of. Yeah, I mean, I left there pretty intentionally and was like, I'm not going back. But uh, I was drawn to my daughter who was drawn to Boston. I mean, it just seems like, I mean, I've been to Boston, it's. So different than Juneau. I mean, a huge city, fucking like everything. And I mean, in some ways it's probably more fun, but in other ways it's, it's so different. It's so different. And while I was there, I mean, especially the first year, I really, really missed the mountains and I really, and I missed the community of Juneau. And um, I kind of, you know, got over it, of course. And you have to like love the one you're with and get involved, in mm-hmm. the, get involved in the place you are. But we kept our house here and, you know, always intended to move back. So I was you know, there as kind of a short so you, timer. You came back last summer, summer, summer of 2020. Yeah. Cause now that I started COVID this, move, <laughs> now that I started this report thing, I, I, you know, I'm trying to sell it and subscriptions and it's kind of, that's why I called you. Cause every time I, I bring it up and then when we started doing it, a lot of people are like, uh, Oh my God, the budget reports kind of 
you know, we, we missed the budget report. Yeah. It was gone. Didn't happen for I guess seven years. So yeah, I've been so surprised that nobody's really filled that niche. Honestly, I know. So. I mean, it's just well, it's so much work. You know, it's 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 a lot of work doing yeah. the work itself, and then selling it, and the business end of it. And yeah, but whenever I bring it up, um, I uh, people oftentimes bring you up, and then uh, what I found is most people, a lot of people don't know you're back. So I guess now they're all going to back. back. Now, now they're all <laughs> now they're all going to know you're back. I'm back. Yeah. And yeah. now you're working for a, a consulting firm, or yeah, working for a. Uh, uh, Long-term, you know, well-known, reputable consulting firm based so, in Alaska. So do you miss, do you miss, do you kind of miss the budget report or are you happy to be? So, um, you know, I'm in, I enjoy what I do in that, again, I'm doing research and writing into issues that I think are important and interesting. So I'm grateful to be able to do that work. Sometimes I miss, you know, having the, well, a, the editorial freedom I had when I published my own thing. I mean, you know how that is. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be able to have full full freedom. Um, and, and, I'm, and, you know, then I was lucky to be in the governor's office where I could more directly, um, you know, influence policy, at least in theory. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of a continuation of a lot of the work I've done and still working on important Alaska issues. So I feel, I feel grateful to be doing that and, and working with really good colleagues. I think it's interesting, the governor, you know, he had so many, Walker had so many people that have all kind of moved on to different things, but it seems like a lot of them, I know many of them, and they still kind of talk or they stick together. Is that, I've noticed that they keep in touch pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Like I just, uh, I just handed you that book, The Politics Industry, which I'm going to recommend everyone read by Catherine Gell and Michael Porter. And we just had last month, I think, a little Team Walker Zoom book group where we discussed it. Um, Team Walker being basically former uh, staff and cabinet members. And we get together periodically, I think, because we all still care, you know, whatever whatever it is we're doing. Um, yeah, it looks like a good book. I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to recommend it for our, I started a book club last year with my friend Katie. So I think we're going to look at recommending the politics industry here, Catherine Gell and Michael Porter. Yeah, I really like it. It's a nonpartisan and it's a look. The last few years I've been getting more and more interested in, I would say, like democracy. You know, I mean, there are so many indicators that our democracy is sliding, you know, and weakening oh, yeah. in, in the U.S. And democracy is weakening internationally, too, according to a lot of indicators. And I feel like almost more important than at least to me right now, like specific policy in terms of like Medicaid or transportation is fixing the processes. Because if we get, if we can fix it so that like we have um, elections, you know, where we have good turnout, where we have good candidates, where we have, you know, a campaign finance system that doesn't swamp people out, you know, with dollars, all these things. Um, then I think we'll, it'll lead to better policy naturally. Um, she has a line in, in the politics industry where she says she sort of realized that switching out the people isn't going to fix the problem. You know, I think it, almost it makes it work. Like, so I've noticed you know, I've run for office before and I used to, when I was younger, a long time ago, I said, I'll oh, fucking just get all new people. If we got all new people, that'll, that'll make it better. And what I've realized is that's actually the worst thing you can do because when you get too many new people, which we have now, we have a lot of new people the last, you know, this last year and two years ago, no one knows what to do or no one knows anything about the processes or about the institution. Yeah. And it actually makes it worse. 
Yeah. Um, and, I, and to have too many new people too fast. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people just think term limits is an easy solution and, and throw the bums out. But, you know, you just throw them out. You get a new crop. But we have system, you know, we have this hyper partisanship that isn't helpful. We have just so many issues, you know, and I have, I have some thoughts, like I wasn't sure what you're even going to ask me, but this whole sort of failure, the house has this incredibly tenuous organization. And I think the Senate's organization, as you've noted, is probably just as tenuous. Yeah, we, we wrote about that. Last, yeah. Last you know, there. they have these incredibly tenuous organizations. And I've been thinking about why. And it strikes me that it's because, you know, why are they having such a hard time forming majorities, especially in the House? They literally don't have a majority, you know? Yeah. And it's because, you know, in the past, membership has its perks. There are really like no perks right now to being in the majority. It's actually Alaska's almost it's, like, it's actually almost bad to be in the majority. Exactly, you're the ones who have to make the bad, hard, tough decisions, and right. probably going to get. And, and I've argued with people about this a lot, a lot. My my kind of idea about politics and you know elected officials kind of stems from Mandela's book, The Long Walk to Freedom. His thing was like when you're elected to be a leader, you have to lead, and sometimes that means telling people bad things or hard things or things they don't want to hear. But that's your job is to do that. Yep. And a lot of these people they want to just do whatever they can to ensure they keep getting elected. Exactly. And, and, and my, 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 my solution to this, and you might disagree, I think we should pay the legislators a lot more money. Hey, you know what? In 2005, I used to write columns, and I wrote one column, and the headline is, we need to pay our legislators better. Yeah. And I wrote a whole column about this, and my point was, first of all, people, uh, you know, who do you want them to work for? We want them to work for the public for us in yeah. Alaska's interest. And if we want that, then we need to pay them. We need to pay them well, you know? Um, I totally agree. And we have this kind of like antiquated notion that we have this citizen legislature. We don't have, we, we ha- don't, we don't have that at all. We don't. It's very hard for people given the uncertainty to maintain a regular job. And it's very hard to maintain a regular job and avoid conflicts of interest again. And for so many reasons, um, and even it's, the th- it's th- really th- unrealistic. And even think. the 90 days, it's bullshit. Usually it's right in the, in the past. It's hardly ever gone last year, 68 only because of the COVID. Right. And the 90 day thing made it worse. So it was 121 days, which is the constitutional Mm -hmm. limit still, Um, you know, the first five, six, seven years I covered the legislature. And then um, Jay Ramaris, Gretchen Gass, and I think Tom Wagner, um, who were all legislators, uh, put this citizens initiative forward, this ballot initiative, making it a 90 day session. And I thought it was a bad idea from the get go. One of the main reasons is as you can see, there's a lot of work and like the legislature is supposed to be doing oversight, you know, whoever the, the executive branch is, you need effective oversight to have balance of power. And, um, and it's a lot of work to comb through the budget, comb through everything that's going on and pass laws. And you can't just do it in 90 days. And they argued, you know, 90 days would be like more of the citizen legislature we want would make it easier for people to leave their lives for three months than four months. But it's just made it more uncertain. Ever since the 90-day, it's been more chaotic. There have been more special sessions after, which it's actually now less predictable. Yeah. Um, and they do a worse job because they sort of, they, they, they've slowly each year dropped the 90-day idea more and more, which is fine with me, and letting, letting the constitutional limit kind of trump well, that. Whenever I, whenever I write about it, I, I put 90-day in quotes. Exactly. 90-day yeah. session. You know, and you don't, 
I think we should just repeal it, but you don't have to repeal it. You can just continue to ignore it and say we're going with 121 day. But when they, when they tried, they sort of restructured the organization and pacing. Then they had to rush through the budget too fast. And they still didn't get it done in 90 days, but they rushed through some of this early process that builds the foundation for the budget. This is why I, I don't think it's a good idea to even sort of try for the 90 day. I'd rather they say we need this four months and we're going to pace ourselves. Well, in the last two years, you know, the house has spent a, a wasted a month both times where yeah. they haven't done anything. <laughs> yeah, and they then have you all get these to good that. people. You know, there's 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 uh, nine nine of the Republicans who were elected last last year. Uh, it's almost half their their caucus. One of them was appointed, and Prax was appointed, so he right. first time getting elected. But I mean, you know, most of them are just brand new. They've never been in that legislature. They've never been even some of the ones who have been there for a couple of years have never been in a majority. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this and, idea you, you said the citizen. I always tell people if we have a citizen legislature, which we totally don't, that building does not in any way represent the citizenry of the state. Just in no yeah. way, not even close. Yeah. And it's because most people, like you said, I have friends who have. I feel you should run for office. You're smart. You're, you'd be great at this. And they're like, "Are you fucking nuts?" I have kids and I have a good job, and I'm not going to go to Juno and deal with me people like me. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's. I think it's very hard and disruptive. You know, I live in Juneau, and so I you know I've all, I've pretty much known like all the Juneau legislators one way or another before they were legislators, and it's much easier for Juneau people. You know, you don't have to pick up and move, but it's really hard it's for only, people. It's only three of the yeah, sixty. It's, right, it's only three. You know, it's got to be really hard to pick up and move, and it's only a certain type of person that is willing to or can. Um, and the other thing when you don't pay them enough is there's too much of the backdoor stuff like inflating travel and moving expenses and per diem, you know, and I'd rather have it all up front, you know, like. Yeah, that's what I've said. I say pay them 150 or 200,000, no per diem, no nothing, no jobs. Yeah. This is your thing. You can't this do anything. This is a salaried job, essentially. And when you're done, you got to maybe wait a year or six months to do certain things. But like the, they have that right now with the executive or uh, certain jobs. You have to wait. Yeah. I, I have that right in front of me to. It's funny, Ben Stevens didn't have to wait. I guess he's not doing... What's the rule? Well, you're not supposed to do like lobbying or... I tell you, the rule, I have it right here. Um, AS 39-52-180. Look at you, very prepared. I do. Well, this is something I'm not... You know, this is something that upsets me. Uh, yeah, the Alaska Executive Ethics Act says, a public officer who leaves state service may not, for two years after leaving state service, represent advise or assist a person for compensation regarding a matter that was under consideration by the administrative unit served by that public officer and in which that officer participated personally and substantially through the exercise of official action. Well, you know, I was subject to this after leaving the governor's office and I took it very seriously. And a year and a half after I left, when somebody asked me to do a small contract that had to do with ferry issues, I thought about it. I parsed every word of this. I read the definitions. I thought through what I did. I consulted Maria Barr, the legislative, you know, and sorry, uh, ethics attorney for the state. And then I decided, no, it's just too close for comfort. I'm not going to do it. You're probably you know? one of the few people who have like read that and thought about that. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Out, I mean, I think I'm a normal person with like normal sensibilities. I'm saying the people who have <laughs> had that worked in there and then had the offer come up. I, I wonder how many of them have like read the statute and then talked to the ethics attorney. I mean, I'm not. Well, I guess I'm guessing not very many. I I I feel like you know, with Ben Stevens' announcement that he's leaving as chief of staff, which is really one of the top unelected positions in the executive branch, right? It's probably the top. Probably the top. And heading to ConocoPhillips, which is one of our biggest 
companies. They have a lot of important state business that's very relevant to our biggest challenges, like our fiscal issues, you know, you name it. Um, And to think that he did not take part in any of those issues in his position in the governor's office is pretty absurd. But more than that, you know, it's possible that he won't be, and and now he's vice president there for government affairs, you know, or or for public (laughs) affairs, whatever, you know, it's, it feels like, what did he say? A charade of a mockery of a... Oh, the governor, governor's yeah, letter. Yeah, he's really making a mockery of this law. And I, he may well somehow find a way to meet the letter of the law. But it's flouting the spirit of the law, clearly. And I think that has costs because we operate on trust you know, and right now trust is in incredibly short supply. And I think that's probably the biggest threat to our democracy is this incredible erosion of trust. And so to see somebody do this, it just makes me like well, I think, sad I think because public- I just think this is not the direction we need to be going to convince Alaskans that they can trust government. I think the public in general in this country, you mentioned democracy you know, in peril. And if you go back to the time of Rome, I mean, no... No governmental or no, no government has ever lasted more than 300 years in the history of the, you know, basically world. And we're coming up on, what, 250, two, you know, almost, yeah. two, we're coming up on close to that. And we, my, my thing now is you, you can't live in a free society when people can't agree on reality. On what's a or, fact. Or, or what's I a agree. Fa- or what's real. And I agree. There's so, there's, there's, I mean, in some ways I started the landmine and it's grown a lot. And I mean, I take very seriously putting out good information and, and real, real, you know, data and, and real information. But other people now, and it's good in some ways because pe- easy to get information, but anybody can start um, a website, a news site or whatever, and, and they can make it look very good and make it look very professional. And they can say, and this happens all the time, they can say things that are just totally not true. Right. Just totally wrong. But then people just read some one thing, the Democrats do it, Republicans do it. I mean, it happens on both ends and that's all they ever consume. And then, you know, of course they think it's corrupt because everything they read every day, everything they see makes them reinforce their idea. It's confirmation bias. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know how you fix it because I have friends that I talk to that aren't even that political and they, they've all of a sudden become super political and they just say things that are totally wrong. It's really... And I try to talk to them yeah, and they don't alarming. believe me. They think that I'm like... People have... Friends of mine have said like, oh, you're part of the fucking system. Like you're yeah. you're part of the... You know, you're part of the... The, the lies and everything. And I go, I'm not part, I'm part of anything. I'm just, I pay attention. Yeah. But you know, I mean, humans, it's like, we are so susceptible. We just, if we hear things a certain number of times, I don't know, what do they say? You, if you taste a food seven times yeah, and then like you'll that, like it, like, like the advertising, they you want you just, to see something. Yeah. And it's, it's, you hear things over and over. And even if they have absolutely no basis in fact, if people surround themselves in it, they start to believe it. And we all are guilty, I think, of like shaping reality to whatever we already believe. And, you know, seeing the world through our conceptual goggles. I had this really great high school teacher who used to work. His whole goal was to teach us to like recognize our conceptual goggles and take them off, you know, mm-hmm. like that we are all filter, filter the world through um, our own views. And it's hard. Like, I notice it even in small ways. Like, well, people will say, oh, you know, she's kind of like that because, like, her parents got divorced. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. 
we always we, we just try to match things up that don't match sometimes no. i think we don't like you, when there aren't good explanations for things and so we try to fit all these things together and we're like ooh, look at that another thing i have to say one of my conclusions after years of watching the legislative process as a reporter was um don't ascribe to malice what simple incompetence will explain yeah, I, what <laughs> i have learned is that people would rather you think that they're like devious and evil than that they're just made a mistake or, 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 or people will see something and they'll assume that they're bad or in yeah. you know, oftentimes these conspiracy things happen and you're like, wait a minute, you think these people are fucking smart enough to do yeah. this conspiracy? No, I mean, they can't even talk to each other about right. some basic things. So now they're going to be part of some huge conspiracy that involves, you know, dozens or hundreds of people to do something yeah. corrupt. I mean, it's usually not the case. Yeah. Or people, you know, I would see people be like, Oh my God, they did this thing, you know? And I'm like, no, they just didn't understand what they were doing. Or I remember one time an uh, an oil lobbyist or oil tax person came up to me one of the few nights that I did go out to the bars. I'd go like once a year and it was always interesting. Um, came up to me and was like, who talked? Who to Or no, he had already made an assumption that it was a certain, like the revenue commissioner had sort of illegally given us confidential information about these people's tax issue. Huh? And I was like, no, 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 he, he didn't. And this oil lobbyist never believed me. And I said, we just did a document request. And like they failed to, law kind of failed to redact it yeah. enough. They tried to redact it, but Greg Erickson is smart enough to know when you read the whole case that it could only be one company and that was your company. And so that's what we wrote. I'm like, that was from you know, law just sort of insufficiently redacting this stuff that we got, you know, nobody told us anything and he, he just wouldn't believe me. Yeah, no, I've, I've same thing before I've gotten stuff and people subscribe, subscribe it to some, you know, I know they gave it to you. I know who gave it to you. I know who gave it to you. I go, okay, but you know, it's not the person they think. You know, I'm like, I got this, I got this in a public records request or like I got this off the internet for all to see, but nobody else is digging into that file or, you know, um, so I was going to, you brought that up by going to the bars. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> I've gotten to uh, have discussions with other people, like media members. And there's this like thing, because I go out, you know, meet, meet with, you know, legislators or staffers or lobbyists and the bars or whatever. And I've always found that's like the best way to get information. But some people, like you said, you never go out. And other people, they have this weird, there should be a wall. But for me, it's like, that's <laughs> the best times to get. I've gotten such good information led to such good stories by being in the bar and having a conversation with somebody and they say, Hey, this happened or you should look into this or did you hear about this? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe everything in moderation balance. I, I don't know. Right. Like we're people and Alaska's small and Juno's small. And so sometimes we know people through multiple ways. They're personal friends as well as people we cover or people who subscribe. And so it's, we have to be, honest like we're all people and have relationships but again you also have to i think cultivate a level of trust with yeah when people aren't going to talk to you if they don't don't trust you yeah which is important you, didn't you say they used to have i don't know they don't do this anymore didn't they used to have like an end of session a party or something or they don't do this anymore oh yes i've never I yeah think it stopped oh my god but i heard yeah. they were like lit yes like they were the... they were lit but if you were sort of young and female they were also frankly dangerous 
sometimes and disappointing. In, a, lot of, a lot of alcohol probably? And- yeah, or just, you, you know, I had certain um, disappointments with, with certain people who I had thought were... They're like saying respectful and up and up. They're being inappropriate or saying inappropriate things or. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, I mean, so it's probably a good thing if it's not happening anymore, but although I think it's still, it's still happening, but different places maybe. I mean, there was one two years ago when it was at the end of the end of the, you know, kind of session and they were trying to get the budget stuff. And there was like definitely a feeling of kind of, it's almost over. And there was kind of a little bit of a different, some people had a little couple shooters. They were having some drinks, but it wasn't a party by by far. I mean, I've heard back in like the eighties and nineties, it used to be a whole different, different. Yeah, world. I heard stories too. Um, yeah, you can ask Greg Erickson about that. He told me some stories about um, cocaine actually I've heard, I've, involved on desks in the Capitol. I've heard the story long yeah. ago. I'm sure you've heard the same. I, I did a podcast with um, last year or two ago. What's the guy? The British guy. He was a professor. Uh, oh my God, he worked at UAS. He was, uh, I forget his name. He was like a British, he did taught politics in Juno for a long time. He just wrote a book about like how to lobby. I'm sure you know his name, but anyways, he was telling me that he came here like in the eighties and he got the j- job and he was a professor of like political science and he's like, well, I better go to the Capitol. And he met some people and kind of started getting some relationships. And he said, he went to a party. He told me this in the podcast. He wouldn't say who, but he went to a party. He got there. He, he like went to put his coat and they said, I'll oh, put it, put it in the room over there. And he opened the door. And there was like several legislators like doing coke. <laughs> and he's like, oh, hi. <laughs> Put my jacket down. Thanks. Yeah. It's, uh, Alaska's a fun place. <laughs> it's an be interesting a, place. Could be a movie. Well, I'm glad you're back and Thanks. you've been very helpful. And Thanks. You're, uh, like I said, whenever I bring your name up, people are always go back to the, the budget report. So you, you definitely left a mark. Thanks. That's very nice to hear. And um, yeah, I know what you mean. When I did it, though, I used to sometimes not understand, although I say it was a lot of work. Sometimes I would think everything we're writing is kind of out there for anyone else to find. It's not some big secret. Yeah, but, but it's, nope, it's... But then I did start to understand more like when I was in the governor's office, maybe why people did appreciate doing that. Because you get people in the building like have their head in one thing or another and can't necessarily see the whole big picture. Your stuff is kind of like you've got your landmine stuff and your Alaska political report stuff. The budget report was maybe like a little more of an amalgamation of those two with a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you've seen I, it. And I try to tell people, you know, it's hard because I people know me from doing the landmine for so long. But I, I try to make it clear that this is a di- different business, you know, different thing. And but it's hard to separate them sometimes. So I'm, I'm trying. Last thing I was going to ask you, it just came up. Now, you did the budget report for all these years and got information and wrote about um, public policy and all these things. When you were in the governor's office, did you see the other side? I mean, I've talked to people who have gone from media to government and they say it's like amazing how much information they get that they would have never been able to get, or it's just so much information that, you know, you're exposed to that it's very difficult to get if you were on the other side. You mean like once you're you're in the the, governor's office, there's so much information. In a way, I feel like when I was at first in the governor's office, I actually felt sometimes like I had less information because I felt a little bit like my hands were tied behind my back because my major tool as a journalist was just talking to people. 
And once you're in the governor's office, those conversations become kind of loaded. And if you just ask people questions, they think, oh, what's the governor getting at? So in a weird way, like I had to really adjust and figure out different ways of understanding what was going on. And so at first I thought, God, I've got less information now than when I was you know, a journalist and could just roam the halls freely, ask anybody anything. Um, yeah, if you're in the if you're in the governor's office and you're walking around the Capitol asking people questions and everybody's going to think, what the hell is right, going on? What's right. you up to? Or if you're calling up agencies and asking for data, you know, where people weren't suspicious when I did that stuff as the, at the budget report, you just can't kind of do that from the governor's office. So I had to like learn a new way. And at first I felt, I would say, handicapped. And over time, um, especially as I think... I gained more of the trust of the governor and learned the job a little better. I I did, you know, start to think, okay, yeah, there's definitely like more going on or things going on behind the scenes that I did not necessarily know or wouldn't know as a reporter. Um, Cause but, I asked, I asked Austin Baird um, after he started working for Walker as yeah. press secretary, I've known him for a long time and maybe a month or two went by and I said, what's it like being on the other side? And he's like, I'll never forget this. He goes, you know, I've, I've been exposed to more and learned more in, you know, a month than I, I would in a year of being a journal, you know, reporter because it's so hard to get the information. But now it's like it's it's all here. But, you know, it's different. Yeah, it's true. Because um, you can't write about it. <laughs> right. Which is good. It's probably, probably a good thing. Yeah. And. And sometimes in the governor's office, I felt like um, there's some information that maybe people guard that doesn't even need to be guarded. But I tend to be very much like I'm a believer in sharing information um, unless there's some really compelling reason mm-hmm. not to. I believe, you know, I guess I think all most journalists, that's sort of a core belief. It's like, so, it's a good thing to do. So when you started, you were on the third floor. I mean, did you still go talk to the people you, or did you kind of have to pull that back a lot? No, I definitely had to dial that back. And especially because, you know, I wasn't in the legislative office and, when when we were new in the administration, particularly, I think they wanted to be pretty careful about keeping roles, you know, and it wasn't until maybe my second year in there when um, I was able to maybe help the legislative team a little more, like use relationships I had and um, more to help the team. Um, I feel like now it took me about three years, I think, to really even understand maybe how to be effective, you know, um, it, it can take a long time and we were all new coming in. I mean, the governor was new and because he didn't, he didn't have a party, he didn't have like a machine and he had no experience in the, you know, the state government. Yeah, he didn't. So I think, um, I think all of us feel now like, oh, if, if I were to go back into that kind of role, I would like hit the ground running know a little better how to be effective, I think. Um, With Walker, it struck me as it took him about two years to, you know, even like the governor Dunleavy, you know, the first two years were pretty rough. Yeah. And now it's, you know, it's it's better than for sure it was two years ago. You know, new people, better people around him maybe, and maybe trying to kind of figure, navigate things better than um, the first, you know, the first session. Same with Walker. I mean, I think he had a lot of upfront shit. And part of it was political too. I mean, nobody wanted to, Republicans were pissed, Parnell lost, and and the Democrats, you know, he was more favorable to them, but they also didn't like some of the stuff he was trying to do, so right. it must have been very, like you said, there's no party, there's no kind of natural allies. 
Yeah, there's no party. And, you know, it's it's tough because you might have all these ideas, um, but then you really cannot do them unless uh, legislature agrees. I mean, some you can, like we were able to expand Medicaid. We really, we tried and tried and tried through legislative mechanisms. And when that failed, we went to executive, you know, executive action. Were you there when he, um, I'll never forget that, when he went to go testify, I think it was the resources committee about, was an oil related oil tax thing or what was that about? Um, I I think it was a gas line thing. It was gas line. Were you you there for that? Yeah. Did you guys know he was going to do that? Because that was like probably one of the strangest things I've ever seen. Just going in. It was public testimony, right? And he went up and testified. Yeah. It was like, whoa. (laughs) It was unusual. You know, he definitely did some unusual things. And, um, you know, there was a change two years in where a new chief of staff came on. And so, yeah, Scott uh, Scott Kendall came in. And so that changed. um, My first podcast was with Scott Kendall and Austin Baird. Mm -hmm. My first ever podcast. Nice. So we've been talking recently about doing a a reboot, you know. Yeah. I'll never forget on that podcast, I... I was my first one, and I was kind of new to it. And during it, I said, and for folks listening, you know, I'll, I'll do a podcast with anybody. And Scott's like, wow, Jeff, fucking thanks. I feel real special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so when Scott came in, like, things shifted. You know, chief of staff makes a big difference. So I mean, ideally, the chief of staff, you know, they're, they're in charge of, you know, they're the kind of head person, but they only have, you know, so many people under them, ideally. You can't have too many people under you, and then it's supposed to kind of naturally... Fit that I think the role shit depends a lot on who's in it really you know like I remember when Murkowski governor Frank Murkowski was governor people felt that Jim Clark who was his chief of staff was pretty much the shadow governor you know mm-hmm. um I think it, it you know it it varies um and Scott Kendall was a very different chief of staff than Jim Whitaker was um Technically, I guess we all, well, I don't know. I, each administration and governor's office is really kind of organized a little bit differently too and operates differently. And, and I think the, the governor themselves really sets a tone, creates the culture. And, yeah. um, I, I, hate that, I hate to use that kind of a bad term, deep state, but I'll tell you what, like I've, I've gotten more, the more I've done this, the more I've realized that there, is, there are people in government that kind of have a lot of power to do things or stop things. And, you know, not necessarily appointed people, but, you know, maybe longer term kind of, you know, bureaucrats or state employees. And um, I don't know, there's 20,000 state employees, right? So I've, I was actually going to ask you about that, if, if you've observed that or seen that there's people that really don't maybe have a ton of accountability on, on how they, I mean, I've, I had somebody once tell me, well, why, why would I care about this? I, it's in four years, it'll be a different governor. I'm not going anywhere. They're leaving. Um, yeah, that can work like different ways, but it's, it's hard to say like if it's good or bad. Um, but definitely you've got career people in government who really keep things moving. And a lot of them, the vast majority, I would say are like fairly, you know, nonpartisan, independent, and they just have a lot of experience we rely on to like keep roads open and keep things happening and keep our courts functioning and, mm-hmm. you know, like keep, you know, doing elevator inspections, just making sure things are happening. So 
I think, you know, we bring in these commissioners at the top who maybe come in and don't actually really know what's going on. And so it's not the fault of the commissioner, but if they come in, no matter how great a leader they are and how great their credentials are, they don't necessarily know, especially if they're running a really big agency, they cannot know everything that's going on, you know? And so I guess that's one thing I've seen more and more. I think there's kind of a difference if a commissioner comes in from within the ranks and then I think they really can kind of know what's going on a little better. If they come in from outside, they can really be somewhat at the mercy of the career bureaucrats, yeah. I think, um, who, I was... who, who, who give them the information, you know. And everybody naturally filters information. You know, we give the information we want someone to hear. So, yeah, I was, you know, when, when Adam Crum got appointed to, to be commissioner of um, Hess, I, I knew Adam uh, not super well, but I used to work in oil and gas. And, I was kind of skeptical, you know, he's like oil and gas, kind of construction guy with a family and younger guy my age. And I was like, man, I don't know, that's, that seems it's a huge department. But in Adam's case, I mean, I think most people would argue he's done a really good job. He's, he's a good manager. He's mm-hmm. good at managing people. And that's probably the biggest thing in government or business is, you know, you have to obviously know the topic of what, and he has actually a degree from, I think it's John Hopkins. He has a, you know, um, health manage, management uh, master's. Not sure what it's called, but mm-hmm. uh, it's health related. But anyways, I mean, it's like it's like if you don't get people who can manage people and they can be the smartest person, you know, yeah. if they don't know how to manage people, especially with hundreds or thousands of people, they aren't going to be effective at all. Yeah. And I think you're right. And they need to be a good judge of character of like, is this person actually giving me all the information? Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, filtering it in some way that they've got this bias or agenda that doesn't match our agenda? You know, I mean, but it's tough because they're also times when these career bureaucrats play a really important function of keeping things from whipsawing too much, you know? So that's why it's tough to say, like, I can't say this is like a good thing or a bad thing that you have these sort of unelected career bureaucrats who maybe have quite a bit of power. Um, I think we sort of need, like, the Trump administration, I would say, is an extreme example of such a huge wipeout of institutional knowledge and memory that it really hurt um, government. Like I remember in after Trump came into office working on the VW settlement. I don't know if you know about this, but Alaska got something like eight million dollars coming. It was coming to us and we had to make a plan. And oh, we, just, the, uh, we had emission, questions about the emissions. It. Yeah. yeah. So we had questions about it. Hey, can we use it this way or that? Because Alaska is different. And we kind of wanted to propose a little bit different rules because they were really made for urban states that didn't work for us. And we literally couldn't find anyone in the Trump administration authorized to engage with us because the the sort of top levels, the decision-making empowered levels were, were sort of wiped out. People had either been fired or resigned or were muzzled. And that was just government grinding to a halt from too much of a purge, I would say, you know, of people who knew what was going on or had. Yeah. I mean, finding the balance is probably, and that's what I've kind of asked myself is, you know, like what, what, who would, what kind of person would be the best governor? And I, I always go back to like somebody who can effectively manage people and hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. Cause sometimes I think, you know, these people and it's not a political, it's not a party related thing. They become governor and they appoint their people or their buddy, whoever it is, people they know to these positions and they kind of just let them run, run loose and, you know, do whatever you want. And until, you know, they really fuck up and then yeah. they have to go. Yeah. But I've, 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 I've seen that be maybe one of the bigger challenges of, 
the governors have had. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's kind of hard to manage people and say, hey, you know, you're fucking up. You got to stop or else you're fired. Most it's, people don't want to do It's a really that. hard job. I mean, you need, and that, there's so many pieces of it. That's really mainly a chief of staff's job, too, I think, to do firing, you know, hiring and be like, no, you got to go or Babcock whatever. was pretty good at that firing part, wasn't he? Uh, he was good at the firing part, you know. I don't know if that was so much for competence or versus for political. I've said this, you know, I, I think Dunleavy, when he won, he had a big opportunity. I mean, I know that a lot of the people um, in the law enforcement and, and the, you know, the prosecutors really supported him because they were frustrated, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, about some of these crime issues in SB 91. And um, I think he had a real shot to, to do some, some some things with some support of maybe traditional people that wouldn't traditionally support Republicans, but that whole right, right off the bat, they just killed it with that letter and the pledge and just right off the bat. I mean, everything that got, I know some Democrats that are in kind of the prosecutor world and they voted for him. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, you got to sign this thing. And it was just such a, I think huge misstep right off the, right off the gate, out of the gate. Yeah, it was. And it just signaled to everybody like, this is political, you know, that we're going to be ushering in this era of like party loyalty. And now it's, it's, I don't think it's the way most Alaskans are, you know, and both parties, if you look at voter registration, they're just shrinking and shrinking. Yeah, they're yeah. the incredible shrinking parties, you know, and the, the majority of Alaskans, a growing majority is not affiliated with either party. Um, you yeah, know, I think the Democrats are down to maybe 12% and the Republicans are down to like 25 or 24%. And then everybody else doesn't want to affiliate with a party. So I think the parties overestimate their, I don't know, you know, how much people really want to ally with them. But. I've had so many friends in the last you know, few months leave either party. Yeah. More, more Republicans, it seems like, that have, that have just gone undeclared. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'm going to ask you, yeah. were, were you there when the Speedo Gate happened? You were there, right? <laughs> no. You weren't there yet? Oh. I think you, were, you must have been there. Yeah, it was early, I, I was there. It was early there. 15. That was the most bizarre. I was there. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you uh, have, any, were you like peripheral? Did you just like, were you involved uh, with that or you just, you just like saw I wasn't it? involved with that except to the extent of like joining in the laughter. <laughs> it, was, it was so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's a good story. It was, it was trending there for a minute. Speedo gate when it happened. Yeah. You that, know, was, that was my 15 like, minutes. Thank the, you for giving us a laugh. Yeah. With your 15 minutes. That was my 50. Yeah. When the yeah. New York times started calling me and Huffington post, like, Hey, what's going on with your confirmation? <laughs> <laughs> well, Rebecca, Brian, it's been great talking to you. I really enjoyed a lot of time. We should do this again. You sure. Got, you have a good insight and good conversation. I got much more to say. Well, we'll do, Hopefully we'll do, they won't get me in trouble, but yeah, we'll do it again. Well, I'll be here through the session. When, when do you think it's going to get, get over? Cause well, Stedman keeps saying, he wanted to be out by March, which I do not think is going to happen at all. I don't think they can get out by March, but I don't know. I mean, this is such a bare bones. Like, this is going to be two years of incredibly bare bones. You know, like, how little can a legislature do, basically? My, my, I, I don't know. I haven't been following this legislature very closely, but it's going to be hard for them to pass a budget April. Maybe they can in April. I think that I don't even know if they can get the votes for without having to make major concessions, but then somebody else is going to want, you know, it's... Like you said, the House only has really 20 right now in their, their It's group. really hard because traditionally the way you make a majority, um, this is going to sound a little crass, but it's sort of like by, by, by buying people, you know, and you either are buying them by, um, okay, you know, you'll be able to make sure that your priorities are protected in the budget or the capital budget in years when we have that, or your legislative priorities will get, you know, elevated. Mm -hmm. Well, this year legislation's basically not happening. There's no time for it. 
or focus. So people aren't going to get, and there's no money, you know? So being in the majority, you get the downside of being committed. You know, if you're committed to voting for a budget, that's going to inevitably piss more Alaskans off than make them happy. And you don't get anything really back because there's no money or time to really give people what their priorities are. So I think that's fundamentally why, you know, besides the 2020 split, clearly, but the Senate, you don't have that problem and you still have a a problem. I think fundamentally it's because majority membership right now is not something anybody really would naturally want, um, except that you want to do good for the state, you know, or that you have a vision for how to I've had plenty of them tell me, you know, they've flat out said, I don't want to be in the majority. I don't want to have to be the one to do this stuff. Yeah, it's just like you've got all the accountability for hard decisions, you know. It should should work the other way, shouldn't it? When you you should get rewarded for... Yeah, I mean, it's like, why why would you want to run for office if you don't want to be part of making those hard decisions? Well, it's pretty fun. Everybody says hi to you and opens doors for you and calls you senator. It's ridiculous. Like, I don't mean to... I I don't want to be, like, crass, but... It's so, not being a state legislator. Okay, you know it is. It's not the be all and end all. Oh, I, know I, I think some of the. I think some of them really overestimate their importance, and some of them really overestimate how much leverage they have, and they're I, I, overplaying I, their hands right now. And um, I, I totally agree with yeah. you, but I just I, I know some of them, and I, I know most of them, and I just can tell it's like the best thing they're ever going to have. You know, like it's a big deal, and they want to keep it going. Yeah, you might be right. It's the problem. Okay, Rebecca Brown, okay. great, great podcast. This is one of my long, longer ones. So Sorry, no, no, it's great. You can you can cut out all you want. I'm not cutting anything out. Very, very good discussion. So I really appreciate it. So right. good well, to you're talk. back in Juno. So folks, if they don't know, you're back, and I appreciate it. We'll do another podcast sometime. Okay, sounds okay. good. Folks, Bye. if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do another podcast, get a get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.